they're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean. Alex Philodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up, she's moving nicely. She's got it. Yes! It is Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview, a massive interview for you once again. Stephen Bradbury, a man who, of course, is entrenched in folklore in Olympic history, in Australian Olympic history, Australia's first ever Winter Olympic gold medal at Salt Lake City 2002 in the 1,000 metres short track speed skating. We all know what happened. We all remember it. We've talked about it a lot on the show and obviously, we have uh, got a lot to talk to Steve about here. He's going to talk about his beer. He's a, he's a beer maker now and uh, talking a little bit about what got him involved in that, as well as a bit about the, the pre-Salt Lake days. So winning a bronze medal back in 1994 in Lillehammer, of course, a member of that history-making relay team that won Australia's first ever Winter Olympic medal in Lillehammer and how things were going, basically, between Lillehammer and Salt Lake and sort of the career lows, the the motivation that led him to going on for one more Olympics in Salt Lake, and a fun little story about uh, getting off the ice in Salt Lake after winning that gold medal and uh, just exactly what some of the people in the crowd were saying to him and his reaction towards some of them. So a great chat here with an icon, a legend, a man you all know and love, the one, the only, Mr. Stephen Bradbury. <laughs> Our next guest on Off the Podium is a man who really needs little introduction, but I'll give him a, a bit of an introduction. Four-time Olympian, two-time Olympic medalist, three-time World Championship medalist, member of the Australian Hall of Fame and the Queensland Hall of Fame, the Sporting Hall of Fame, that is. Also, 10th on Dancing with the Stars, 20th on Australian Survivor, and 4th at the Australian Grand Prix Celebrity Challenge in 2005 and one of the founders of one of the best beers that are currently going around in Australia right now. It is an honour to welcome to Off the Podium, the one, the only, Stephen Bradbury. Steve, first of all, pleasure to have you here on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. And you might have had one too many of my last man standing (laughs) beers when when you did those stats there because I wasn't 20th on Survivor. I was 19th. Don't oh, get that wrong. Guide team. <laughs> Jeez. And I'm meant to be a survivor expert as well. I think I just blew our chance to get you over on my survivor podcast in a few years. Shit. All right. Um, well, uh, those beers are that good, Steve, that it just kind of uh, it, it blows with the head. So uh, that kind of works. I want to start with the beer, actually, because this is um, – I, I – I tried it. You you gave me some of your beers recently. Uh, we sort of worked together, obviously, with Channel 7. I got the Rona, uh, and as part of being able to recover, I was able to drink some of your beers. So thanks very much for that. But how how did this come about, the idea to uh, get involved in, in starting a beer? Was this something that you'd always wanted to get involved in? In a roundabout way, uh, it was always meant to happen, uh, and it's not the usual path for a Olympian to go into booze. I don't know <laughs> any other Olympian who's ever done that. But uh, for me, I've always done things, I suppose, a little bit unorthodox. 
uh, even my skating technique wasn't the prettiest to watch, but it was effective. Uh, and I'm with the beer. I started the business with a couple of mates. Their names are Stephen and Damien Prosser. Uh, and their dad used to play for the Wallabies back in the 70s. His name was Roy Prosser. He was big front row forward. And after his Wallaby career, he became one of the head honchos at Carlton United Breweries. And him and I became mates through Olympic circles and sporting circles. And then I became mates with his sons as well. And we all toyed with the idea of, of one day maybe doing our own beer together. And we never did it. Big Roy passed away about 12 years ago now. And his sons and I kept that conversation going. And eventually we said, well, if we don't do this, we're going to die with regrets. We don't want to do that. We want to do it. So we like to think that, you know, whilst we've created what I believe is the is the best lager ever brewed, I'm a little biased, <laughs> but uh, there's a little bit of big Roy's memory in every can. Fantastic, fantastic. And the name itself, obviously, was that, that, that was pretty, was that the easiest part to come up with when it came to putting this together? It was, you know, that was always going to be the name, but uh, not easy to dance around the uh, responsible drinking side of our branding because, you know, being the last man standing, if you just look at it at face value, it says, okay, well, who can drink the most and stay standing up? Hmm. But that's that's not what the concept at all is. We've got we've got the, the hair and the tortoise on the logo. So it's a little bit take the piss out of myself and the way that I won the gold medal but it's also around encouraging responsible drinking because you don't want to be the hare, go too hard too early and make a pissed idiot of yourself. You've got to perfectly pace yourself and be the tortoise so you can be the last one standing. Great, great work there. And, and is, it, is it a bit of a process when it comes to putting together a beer and, and kind of when it comes to tasting recipes and kind of making sure that it's it's up to the standards of what you three want and then branding like how long does it take from the okay we're going to do this to it's on the shelves people can buy it it probably took a year wow of uh of planning and trial and error and getting well first was to get the flavor of the beer exactly what we wanted and then the whole marketing plan was done before we put any cans in cartons or anything like that but uh yeah it's trying to compete in the mainstream beer game because we're an easy drinking lager that, you know, borders on a pils that has a little bit more malt flavor in the aftertaste. So it's definitely not a craft beer. Uh, it's a beer that nine out of 10 beer drinkers can get their head around. And, you know, we're trying to compete on the mainstream beer market against the big brands that everyone's heard of in Australia. You know, your VB, your Carlton Draft, your Great Northern, your Forex, these big brands that are all now owned in Japan. Mm. No one's money stays in Australia. None of the beers, aside from Cooper's, are Australian-owned anymore. You know, and so we're trying to compete on a volume scale against these guys. And you know, it's probably the most competitive market imaginable. But uh, you know, I think we can crack it. And if we can do, if we can make a blip on the radar against these big guys, then Australian-owned, hopefully, on the back of COVID, becomes a little bit more important. And you know, if the if the big dream ever comes off, I'd like this beer to be the uh, the beer for the 2032 Brisbane Olympic Games. That's a good goal. I like that. That really, really works that way. And and have you found this, I mean, compared to your skating career, I mean, more challenging, as you are saying, like trying to get into the beer market, cracking the beer market, because it's obviously completely different from a sporting career, but I mean, in terms of how you're trying to market it and get a, a foothold in the competitive beer industry you're talking about. 
Yeah, well, you know, obviously you've got to be in hundreds, if not thousands of bottle shops and you've got to be on tap in as many venues as you can to try and get that volume going for the beer and lots of people knowing about it. And a, a bigger part of the the whole campaign for a beer is the marketing side of it, which you need a big budget to be able to do. And we're only just creeping into that space now. We've done it you know, in the first two and a half years on word of mouth the taste of the beer and telling everyone everyone we know about it and trying to get people's lips around it and drink one and then tell their mates. But, you know, if you look at what Great Northern's done, which is the number one selling beer in Australia now, in my opinion, not the best quality beer you could ever drink. Mm. But marketing campaign is amazing. And 75% of that game is, getting your branding in front of people and they go, oh yeah, I'll give that beer a try because it's very interpretive as to what you consider a good beer and what I consider a good beer could be completely different. You know, yeah. and if you drink an, if you drink enough of one beer, even if you consider it bad, you're going to start to like it after a while. <laughs> it's kind of like this show, Steve. Eventually, people listen to it long <laughs> enough, they, they they start to like it. Um, I mean, it's it's like as a Tasmanian, obviously, Southern Tasmanian. I'm all for Cascade, but then you got Bogues up north who just we think over promote themselves because they're just crap, right? And so you know, so there there is that there. And plus, I can imagine that the those initial phases of of tasting the beers, getting the recipes right. I mean. Must be a pretty cool part of the job. I'm just going to work today to, to test some beer recipes today. I'll, I'll see you later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the attractions. And, you know, obviously having a beer and watching sport and having a drink with your mates is, is all part of our branding. But, you know, there's the, the hard work phase is certainly there now where you've got to go and visit bottle shops all the time and stand there and give people free samples every Friday <laughs> afternoon, which I've done hundreds of times pre-COVID. And as of my business partners and, you know, some people get a bit of a shock when they see an Olympic gold medalist standing in their local bottle shop, serving them a, a free sample of beer going, please buy this, please buy this. But, but, but everything starts from the ground floor, you know, and that's what I did in my sporting career. You know, I was a speed skater from Brisbane. Obviously I didn't have many or any sponsors and I did it the hard way. And, you know, if we can, continue to do those little steps for a long time with the new business, with the beer that I'm involved in now, then, you know, I think that puts us in, in good stead with a good foundation underneath us to get there slowly, but surely. And, you know, who knows what happens at, at the end of the day, it could be a, a similar Aussie success story to, uh, to when I won this thing 20 yeah. years ago. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. Have you stolen that from the, the museum? You've taken it back. I, I was at the uh, Hall of Fame Museum a couple of weeks back and I saw it there. That You finally said, oh, no, I want it back now. That might that might have been a Lisa Campbell's one that's, uh, no. that's, in there, that's in there in the museum. My skin suit's in there. But, uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I do love it. Actually, it's funny. We we had um, Kieran Hansen on a couple of years back and, and he got the uh, the bronze out from Lillehama. So it's kind of, we like it when it's sort of, it's there, ready to go and kind of uh, out to shock. Cause it's, it's a big thing. We always like to find out what happens with, with the medal. But you, you're obviously mentioning sort of getting started in the sport, everything along those lines. A lot of talk recently has been the 20-year anniversary, of course, of the gold in Salt Lake. But 30-year anniversary, Steve, of your, your first Olympic appearance back in, in Alberville, which I think... Do you find that with all the hoopla and all the excitement that came with the gold in, in Salt Lake that a lot of 
the pre-Salt Lake story gets lost because I, I've read your autobiography. It's one of the best autobiographies I've ever read and all the story and everything in the lead up to, to Salt Lake and your career. I mean, world part of the world championship winning team, of course, in 1991 in, in the relay, ultimately part of the, the Lillehammer bronze in uh, 1994 as well. But do you feel that so much of that story does kind of all that success you had pre-Salt Lake gets lost in your story because of how you won the gold in Salt Lake? No, I think I disagree. Um, I think the rest of my story would have been lost regardless of whether I'd won the gold anyway. And, you know, you mentioned that you had Kieran Hansen on this show and I, I spoke to him after he told me about it. He's my best mate. And he said, oh, I had this, this bloke who wanted me to do a podcast. And I haven't had someone ask me to do a podcast to talk about my sporting career since about, you know, six months after I retired. And, you know, unfortunately, that's the, the nature of the beast. People, people don't remember silver and bronze medals. I mean, you know, you're a big sports nut. Rewind the clock to Tokyo six months ago. Can you tell me a bronze medalist from our Olympic team, but not the boomers? <laughs> I can tell you a couple. Kelsey Lee Barber, our, our javelin thrower, um, our, our decathlete. I've forgotten his name. Uh, so there's your point there. But um, there no, there's, yeah, there's, there's definitely yeah. a, a few. Well, you, yeah. you've, done, you've done a lot better than most because you're, you're, you're a sports nut and you know a lot about <laughs> too much, pretty, too much, much, pretty much every sport. But, you know, my, my point is that, you know, the bronze medal for Kieran and myself and the other guys in the team was, uh, was amazing to win Australia's first Winter Olympic medal. But a couple of weeks later, the country had, had forgotten us. It's fascinating that. So fascinating. Because I, I, I was seven to, uh, I don't know how that makes you feel, Steve, but I, I remember it vividly when, when that happened. And I wanted to sort of know, like, what that reaction was like when you got back home. But, I mean, as you're saying, a bit forgotten about. But was there a bit of here you are off the plane, Australia's first Winter Olympic medalist and kind of a, a bit of attention there that helped boost anything within, say, you guys as a team and the sport? Or was, as you were saying, it was just kind of quickly forgotten about and it was just back to status quo before the Olympics? No, it was it was a short-lived bit of media attention for the sport. You know, um, we'd gone in as the, as the favourites in the relay for Albertville and didn't work out, but uh, in Lillehammer getting Australia's first winner medal, you know, we were on the front page of, of most of the newspapers in Australia the next day and, you know, all the uh, television cameras and radio shows wanted to have us on for, for a week or so. So, you know, for us guys that had been, I suppose, training and competing in complete anonymity for most of our lives to have people want to know a little bit about our story was gratifying and, you know, for me, after that, accolades of the bronze medal faded. I mean, I had another eight years in anonymity before <laughs> before Salt Lake City and the gold medal that everybody remembers. And, you know, from there, uh, the whole world wanted to know my story at, at the end of something that had started 20 years earlier. So, as you mentioned after you read my book, uh, there's a fair bit of background in there. Yeah, so much. And, and some of the things, like, you, you've said, too, in other interviews about how you didn't feel you skated at your best until Salt Lake. I mean, as I said, you had three Olympics before 2002. Obviously, Nagano was in between Lillehammer and, and Salt Lake. Going into that, considered a, a medal chance. I mean, what sort of do you remember from, say, Nagano and kind of what happened there in terms of not skating your best and things like that? Kind of what sort of do you feel was about those Olympics that maybe wasn't up to your peak where you wanted to be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, there's a list of things I could go through. In Lillehammer, I was... <laughs> 
I was one of the big favourites in the thousand, and and I got knocked over in the first round of the competition. The the guy who knocked me down in the heats got disqualified, but that didn't help me. And you know, Nagano, I still had realistic chances to win medals there in the thousand, and you know, I had glandular fever in the lead up. You know, I got I had a, a knee injury in the lead up. Blah blah blah. But uh, you know, it was it was a lot of trials and tribulations along that journey. And uh, you know, there's a lot of athletes that have trained incredibly hard for a long time in their sport and didn't get to achieve their goals. Mm. And for me, that's what that's how it was up until Salt Lake. You know, three Olympic campaigns and not having skated my best was driving me crazy. And in Salt Lake, at my fourth Olympics, my best wasn't what it used to be. You know, there was six to eight guys in the world that even on my best day, I couldn't beat anymore. You know, and four of those guys were on the ice in the final against me in Salt Lake City. And, you know, I had a bit of experience and judgment under my belt by that point. So having skated my best in the quarterfinals, that was where... I achieved my goals in that Olympics. And, you know, from there on in, I had a hell of a lot of luck. And was that that motivation that spurred you on? Say after every single one of those Olympics, it was getting you to Salt Lake. Cause as you were saying, you, you hadn't felt you would achieve your best and that's what helped you go to a fourth Olympics. Yeah, there was definitely unfinished business and probably the defining moment came down to, well, was, 18 months before I got the gold medal, I had a crash in training out at Acacia Ridge. I went headfirst into the barrier and I broke my neck. Ouch. Picture, picture of me there with the halo brace screwed, screwed into my skull. Yeah. And uh, I, had, I had two and a half months in that thing and I had, I had that whole time to think about what I'd already done in my sporting career and what I still had ahead. And in thinking about big picture during those two and a half months, it said to me, well, if you finish up now and the doctor who screwed that into my head, he told me I'd never skate again. I just went to another doctor <laughs> because in my head, I had no choice. Mm. I only had 18 or 16 months of hard work to go after that thing was off my head. 16 months out of 14 years is only a little bit on the end. So in my head, if I didn't do it, have one last crack at the Olympics then I'd regret it for the rest of my life. So I didn't have a choice. It's incredible. It's the only thing, the only thing that I'd became, elite or an expert at briefly here or there. I wasn't exceptional in anything else. And, you know, that's the case with most athletes. You kind of put all your eggs into one basket. And, you know, in the, in the quarterfinal in Salt Lake City is where I put those demons to rest. I skated the best that I could as the oldest skater in the entire Olympic field. And that was the, the moment sitting in the change room where I'd realized that goal was, for me, that was, that was the highlight of my life. And it was part of that too, not only recovering from that injury and having that motivation, but was there maybe a lack of pressure on yourself that you felt less of that, say, had in Nagano, Lillehama, that, you know, people looked at you in Lillehama and Nagano was a potential medal favourite and then maybe in Salt Lake they weren't necessarily focused on you as much as they were back then because you were sort of more of the twilight of your career as you were, say, four years prior? Yeah, 100%. Oh, you know, I was, I was flying under the radar you know, being a speed skater from Brisbane, <laughs> I flew under the radar a lot of the time, even when I was arguably the best in the world. But, uh, you know, coming into Salt Lake, the, the top guys in the world weren't 
looking at me or studying my form and race tactics because they had other skaters that they were uh, more concerned about. And, you know, as I mentioned, it, it was about getting to that fourth Olympics for myself to skate my best in front of the whole world because there's not too many spectators at Ice World at Acacia Ridge at 5am on a Tuesday, you know. And so for me, getting to finish my skating career with, a, you know, 16,500 people in the stadiums and, you know, on such an Olympic high was the carrot to train that last 16 months after I'd broken my neck because prior to that, there was there was a lot of doubts in my head as to whether I still wanted it enough because I knew that medals weren't going to be realistic in Salt Lake City. And until I'd broken my neck, I wasn't sure that going to a fourth Olympics and just doing my best was enough for me. There was questions as to whether I just should stop now. You know, why should I go to a fourth Olympics? I don't need another Olympic team tracksuit. Hmm. I've got plenty of them. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in the end it came down to, well, firstly, being a bit of a stubborn prick. But uh, <laughs> secondly, having to finish what I started. And, you know, that's, there's probably a little bit of that, that first-time Olympians in, in Tokyo or Beijing didn't get to see their sport with a heaving, packed stadium yeah. like I got to do in Salt Lake City. You know, and whilst on the television, the no crowd factor didn't play into the spectacle of it that much, there's definitely some adrenaline and buzz from within the stadium that you get when you walk into the Olympic Stadium that's packed to the rafters with, with the crowd that some of those athletes didn't get to experience, which, you know, that's that's a big part of the buzz when you're, when you're there and you're in it on that particular night. Yeah. And I mean, as you said, 16,000, I'm sure 15,998 of them were all going for Apollo Ono, of course, uh, that <laughs> night. We, we, we spoke to Apollo uh, a couple of weeks before Beijing. And what I loved about sort of when we brought up the race is that he's obviously still to this day, he does motivational speaking and all that kind of things. And if he's got Australians in his, um, his events, basically he's always got at least one who comes up like, Oh, do you remember that, that race back? The Australian guy won it. And he's like, yeah, no, I probably remember it more than you do. <laughs> I was the guy who got second. Um, I mean, do you still sort of, uh, have a chat with Apollo every now and then and kind of, you know, reminisce or, you know, was it sort of the short tracks, you know, fraternity, a bit close like that where you do sort of stay in touch with people like that over the years? Uh, it depends who it is and where they're from. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the Chinese and the Korean guys, not so much, but they don't speak much English anyway, so it makes it tricky. But, uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've caught up with Apollo here or there over the years. And, you know, it's been 20 years since I retired and, well, 10 since he retired now as well. But, uh, yeah, last time I uh, hit him up was we've got the Bradbury movie, which has been stalled over the last two years through COVID. But, you know, the script has been written and uh, we're potentially going to get Apollo to play himself. Nice. Well, he's done acting mm. before, of course. We talked to him about his little role in a movie about giant Tasmanian devils that uh, took over Tasmania. We had a few questions oh, about that. Really? So he's, he's, I, yeah. I haven't seen that movie. What's oh. that called? It's, uh, I think it's just called Tasmanian Devil. Uh, I'll, I'll wow. send you a link. It's, uh, it's interesting. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not too sure about uh, the, the, the factualities of Tasmanian Devils there. But, hey, look, you know, now that you know he's got acting ability, then you, you're sold. Mm. I saw him on an episode of 
Hawaii Five O, I think it was <laughs> one of the the new versions, and he hosted some uh, B grade game show in the he US did. for a while as well. Where yeah, you know, his his game show host skills probably could have used a little bit of work, but he wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he I mean, maybe though you could get the, the Dancing with the Stars tips. He won Dancing with the Stars, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah whereas I finished, whereas I finished last, so, yeah, a bit different. <laughs> Can't, Kind of poignant there, I think, Steve. With, obviously, with, with the Golden Salt, like, I mean, you know, the story's been told, so many sort of, you know, interesting facts about it. Is there, is there anything about that race or anything around Salt Lake that maybe you feel doesn't get told enough? Or is there a particular story sort of around the gold that, you know, perhaps that hasn't really been shared a lot that maybe you want to talk about today? Uh, well, you mentioned the 16,000 people in the stadium. And now when, when I crossed the line... They were all booing. Mm. And if you replay the race, you can kind of hear it in the background through the effects mic. And, you know, most of the 16,000 people were booing because Apollo Ono was in the pileup and, you know, he was pumped up in the American media to to get the gold. And, you know, they weren't booing at me, but it was a strange feeling to cross the finish line at the Olympics and have the entire place booing at you. And, you know, for me, I celebrated for a couple of seconds in my head and then then I was waiting for the official judge's decision. And, yeah, there was there was an American guy in the crowd who was, like, right at the front row and I was over at the edge of their barrier and he said, Bradbury, you should stop smiling. You don't deserve shit. And wow. um, I just glared at him and gave him the finger. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, they didn't catch that on the television. But... Uh, but yeah, there was it was an interesting few minutes there while the the judges were huddled together to make their official decision. That's crazy. That's I mean that would have been one of those things that in in today's world probably would have made it, and you would have been viral like a meme or something like that on Twitter with the finger like "got gold, fuck you all." Like <laughs> that would have just gone that way probably. Um, that would have been interesting. I went I went to Salt Lake and I saw a jazz game a few years ago, and I like basketball, great, absolutely love basketball, but I was more like, hey. This is this is Bradbury Arena here. This is where history was made. I'm looking at the rafters of all that, you know, the the championship banners and the Hall of Fame. I'm like, where's the Bradbury one? We want the we want the Bradbury thing hung from the rafters. I think you need to contact them. <laughs> you need to contact them basically in Salt Lake in the, the arena there to be like, hey, where's my where's my honour in this stadium? <laughs> yeah, well, the jumbotron they call it there, which is the the huge big screen that sits above the basketball court. Well the ice rink when I was there but uh, yeah when the gold medal came up on it huge with my name next to it when the official result came through from the announcement of the of the result from the judges then for me that was that was the moment where I knew that it was real and I'd already gotten off the ice by that point the other skaters had gotten off and I wasn't going to do a victory lap if they announced me the winner which I thought they were, they were going to do and you know when it happened I just sort of looked up and there was a couple of seconds there where some of the people in the crowd cheered. Not many. Most of them were still booing because Odo didn't win. But uh, was, I couldn't hear it. There was a couple of seconds there where it all just went silent in my head and they felt like that they were my few seconds. Yeah, perfect. And, of course, hearing that national anthem, first time ever at a Winter Olympics, fantastic. We just saw in Beijing, Charles Hamlin was 37 when he won a gold medal uh, in what supposedly, and his last Olympics, he said it now for the last couple, you, you could have easily gone on for two more, gone to Vancouver there. Steve, was there any temptation for you to go on post uh, Salt Lake for a couple more? 
<laughs> not a chance. Uh, <laughs> probably the the thing that's given athletes so much more longevity, or you know, it's more than one thing, uh, is recovery techniques. You know, things like ice baths, massage, injury prevention, video analysis, and a big one that's come into well most sports nowadays is money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of athletes continue on, and they haven't they haven't really crippled their body as badly as what athletes did in my day because of all the recovery techniques after training, and and all those things cost money as well. So I think they're the reasons why athletes do or can go on a lot longer than what they used to. Do you think Charles has got one more on him? Do you believe him when he says this is his last Olympics? He's been saying that oh, since like Sochi, hasn't he? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, uh, there was a guy that I used to race against, Mark Gagnon, and he was four-time world champion in short track. And for me, he was probably I used to, I, I used to see him as the greatest of all time in the sport. But I sent Charles Hamlin a message the other day, and I said, "Well, I think it's you now, mate." Um, nice, because. To get a gold medal at, at his age in a sport where the lactic acid tolerance that you have to maintain isn't for somebody in their 30s at all, let alone 37. Mm. You know, and for him to to finish with another gold medal in the relay is, you know, in, in my head probably sees him as the, the greatest of all time now. Incredible. And then he gets tweeted by Lewis Hamilton. So, I mean, you know, kind of uh, keeps going well for Charles. <laughs> keeps popping <laughs> up there. Now, Steve, before we let you go, uh, one thing I want to quickly bring up. I brought this up to you uh, when, when we were in Melbourne. I just want to, I want to see if you maybe had time to think about it. We had um, Kieran Perkins on the show uh, last year, and I brought up him this idea. You mentioned Brisbane 30, 2032, that Kieran comes in to light the torch, and then all of a sudden he falls over and you come in and light the cauldron for 2032. Now, obviously not a winter Olympics because it's a summer Olympics, although technically it's in winter because it will be in there. I mean, are you on board with this? Can we can we get the backing here, Steve, that we can push this? You and Kieran team up. We can push the AOC, the Kathy moment, lighting the cauldron. Because I think this would be just the, the best way to light the cauldron in 10 years' time in Brisbane. Come on. Uh, well, I'm pretty sure... Kieran Perkins wouldn't have agreed with you on that, would he? <laughs> he you know, he, he had a laugh of it. He said he's like, no, no, I, I can have a chat with Steve. So uh, he, he seemed on board. So uh, maybe mm-hmm. it's just the pressure of being on air. And then as soon as we go off, he's like, Ben, that's a shit idea. Don't ever talk to me again. But, hey, I've got it on the record, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a chance that uh, Kieran might throw his hat in the ring to be the head of the organising committee for, for Brisbane 2032. I imagine he'd be one of the, the front runners for that spot. And obviously True. he's got... He's got a lot of uh, business experience under his belt and his athletic experience is, is pretty obvious. But, uh, yeah, we're in for a pretty exciting decade ahead in, here in Brisbane in the lead-up to 2032. So it's pretty cool having the Olympics come to your town. Yeah, and, I, I mean, again, technically a Winter Olympics, Steve. So we could technically get short track maybe in the summer program, you know, just, just possibly just talk to some people. <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of possible there. Uh, before we let you go, um, plug the beer. Where can people find out more information on it? Plug yourself on social media. Anything that uh, you want to sort of get people to uh, to get drawn to, so they can stay up to date yeah, with what you got going on. There's, there's a website for the beer there. lmsbrewing.com.com.au. Whatever you want to put in there, and uh, we've got a a beer locator on our website there that'll that'll show you where you can get it. But uh, right. we're in every we're in every Dan Murphy's between Cairns and Coffs Harbour. Beautiful. So if you live, if you're listed and you live in any of those spots, go and grab 
go and grab a six pack for the last man standing it should be 20 bucks or just under 20 bucks about 18 uh and we're on tap in a lot of places too but have a look at lmsbrewing.com.au for where you can get it and uh yeah well mainly my skill set over the last uh, 15 years or so ben is is doing corporate motivation and entertainment and a bit of stand-up comedy thrown in and that's, I've been a bit quiet on that front over the last two years because when COVID hit, it just went. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, if anyone wants to check me out and book me for their event, I'm at stephenbradbury.com.au. Perfect. And yeah, you can have a squiz at that. And uh, yeah, be uh, be nice for things to get back to normal again real soon. Got some good jokes probably planned for the two years worth there that you've just been working on, ready to go, firing out in all cylinders. Well, I don't do stand-up comedy, but I'm pretty good at standing up. Yep. <laughs> that is the best way to end the interview. Steve, it has been a pleasure to chat with you, mate. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, we, we look forward to seeing the beard dominate the world and everything else in between. Thanks, Ben. See you, mate. And a massive, massive thanks there to Steve for his time. A lot of fun. And I've, I've had his beer. I, I have he's had his beer and thoroughly enjoyed it. So if you are in Australia and want to get your hands on his beer, then uh, definitely look out for it, Last Man Standing. And as he said, lmsbrewing.com or .com.au. And you can also get some cool little merchandise on there. You can get a cool little tortoise logo. You can buy a T-shirt. There are some stubby holders there. There's some hoodies. Uh, there's even face masks you can get out there. So uh, make sure you check that out. And if you want to look at the video interview of this, YouTube, of course, find us on there off the podium. You can see Steve show off his gold medal and the beer. So uh, check that out. And by all means, you can uh, be more entertained by staring at Steve and not necessarily at my face. Got so many more great interviews lined up in the coming weeks, of course. Uh, we've, we've had some great ones in the past that uh, if you've missed out on any of those, make sure you do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of those interviews. Of course, Sally Pearson last week, great chat, Mac Horton prior to that one. And we've got some more winter athletes coming up as well off the back of Beijing and just some more great interviews that will keep you entertained here off the podium because we know we like to entertain you and that's what we want to do and that's what we are doing. We hope we're doing, possibly, maybe. And we'll get Jared and Colin back on, of course, to uh, do some other episode types uh, coming up soon. Got some rankings that we've got planned. Obviously, the Commonwealth Games coming up in a couple of months. We'll do a couple of episodes on those. And then later this year, we're going to, for the very first time, do an episode on the World Cup, which is very exciting. So um, get, get excited for all of that too. Off the podium on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe to us on all the good podcast servers and never miss an episode wherever you are on the planet Earth. And we appreciate your support by listening to the show. We thank you so much, and we hope that you will stay tuned. Because you are. You love the show, and we love you. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. As always, special shout-out to Jason Momoa. And until we next speak again, put a sock in it, Mountain, and go left. Go left.